This is Truth Encounter, and today we invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. This is the origination of the wooden chest so coveted by Harrison Ford in Raiders of the Lost Ark. What was in the original Ark? Why was it there? And can we find some solid foundations for life in the 21st century from the 14th century BC? Let's join our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wordson, and find out. We asked the kids, what kind of choices did your parents make? And I wish that every one of you could read those responses. Because what you would see in living color is a tremendous contrast of the kind of choices that parents made. You see, when we were living through the 60s, Haight-Ashbury and the riots on Kent State, the protests against the Vietnam War, the gathering together in uh, Central Park for a massive pot-smoking, uh, singing, free love time, the summer of 67 when college students all over America you know, put on flowers and grew their hair out long and never took a bath, and, and the big slogan was, you know, make love, not war, and a lot of young people did. Those were in the days before AIDS. It was back in the days when they said that penicillin could handle all the venereal diseases and where contraceptive methods could keep pregnancy from occurring. But you see, back in the 60s, Timothy O'Leary was telling our generation that the way to find God, the way into the new spiritual dim dimension, was through taking drugs. The Beatles sang that uh, they were more popular than Jesus Christ. They made that claim. And they said that in just a few years, they would take over all that traditional worship that Jesus Christ uh, faced. In fact, in one of the quotes from the Beatles, they said, well, Jesus himself was kind of okay, but his followers were a bunch of stuffed shirts and uh, religion was kind of an out-of-it thing. So I want you to feel a little bit the choices that were made back in the 60s. Because probably the heartbeat of the 60s was this little slogan. There aren't any moral absolutes. No moral absolutes. If it feels good, just do it. It wasn't a Nike ad, just do it. It was a motto of a generation. The basic idea was that if you were at a college campus and you saw a beautiful co-ed, if two adults mutually consented, you just did it. You just do it. You do what feels good. And that was the basic absolute. That is the absolute of that generation. There are no moral absolutes. All the authority structures need to be torn down. And somehow out of this chaos, maybe a new day will emerge. It was a heady time. It was an exciting time. With President Kennedy and his beautiful wife being elected, it was like the age you've heard it referred to as the age of Camelot. And what you need to think through, I want every one of the young people to think through, but most of all, I want you daddies to think through. Because there was a whole lot of daddies that were college students in the 60s. And some of those daddies are sitting right here. And you breathe this heady atmosphere of all the traditional values are gone. There's really no moral absolutes. Nobody knows how to live life more skillfully than anyone else. You just have to do your thing you have to live the what, what according to your heart and just follow your heart and you're going to find, you're going to find nirvana, you're going to find peace, you're going to find happiness. Read what the kids 
of that 60s generation of parents have to say. One of the little kids, one of the, one of the teenagers, not little, but a teenager will say, an unwise choice that my parents made is they chose to have intercourse before they got married. And I came along, and as their marriage began to develop, trust was destroyed, and my mom and dad split, and they had a choice, wise or unwise choice. And a dear teenager says it was an unwise choice. Just do it. What about the next generation? Another kid writes at the bottom of the page, my parents chose to fool around a little bit with drugs. And they write, unwise choice. And then they go on and they write and they say that my, my parent, because of what they did, couldn't tell me what to do either. Couldn't give me any direction because they felt so guilty. And the kid wrote down, unwise choice. I was hurt. I was hurt. There's some other kids that wrote, curfew at night. And then they write, unwise choice. <laughs> and then they write underneath it, wise choice. Tough choice, wise choice. You see, all of you as parents, I want every one of you to realize that you're all making choices. The young people are making choices that are going to set the direction of their life. I'm going to use the illustration as we begin our week of going up the chairlift at Taos. And I'll never forget that the, the major chairlift at Taos is a triple diamond black. It, you go right up the face of the mountain. There's moguls about three feet high on that very severe slope. In fact, you have to warn a beginner when they go to Taos, there's other ways to get down. I had to just tell Mary, Mary, you really, really don't have to come down what we're going over right now. I mean, it's so bad that I've had guys, that, I've had ski instructors tell me they've had guys that have wet their pants and decided they needed to go down on the chairlift and not go down the mountain on their skis. And I'll never forget, one of the times I was going up, there was a herd of children. It was like a herd. There's about 15, 20 kids that had come halfway down the mountain of Taos. They come to a line, and there was an opening in the line. And down through that opening was this triple diamond black. I mean, dropping off a cliff, three-foot-high moguls. And I could watch these kids debating. They were debating, should we do it? And one of their friends is saying, come on, kids, we can do it. You know, a little, little bitty kid, you know, he was going around with his kids. said, come on, come on, we can do it. I want you to imagine that somebody comes along and he looks at these 15 little kids and he says to them, listen, man, there's no principles in skiing. There's no training necessary in skiing. You do what really makes you feel good. You do what makes you feel high. I want to tell you something. Just follow me, young people. Come down this ski slope. You're going to have more fun than you've ever had in your entire life. So all these little kids come flying down behind this haphazard skier that does, follows his value. It feels good, do it. I want to share something with you. At Taos, New Mexico, every year, somebody dies. And that's how it happens. Because somebody gets on a slope that they're not prepared for, that no one trained them for, that no one showed them how to do it. Because whether you like it or not, you don't just snap on a pair of skis and just do it. You've got to have someone that really knows how to do it, someone that's lived a lot of hours on the slope, someone that begins you out really slowly, 
and they protect you and they guide you and progressively they take you down harder and harder slopes. And what we need our young people to do is we need our young people to have a ski instructor come up with a yellow jacket and say, young people, if you go down that those mogul run there, you could get killed. But if you'll follow me, we'll go up to the top of the mountain again and we'll start from the beginning. And I promise you, if you'll follow me, if you'll listen to my instruction, if you'll let me guide you, eventually we'll go down the excitement of that slope together. But you have to do it my way. You have to submit to me and you have to obey. The greatest tragedy of the 60 parenting generation is they didn't realize that there needs to be somebody in life that wears the yellow ski instructor coat that says there's a way to do it. I want you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, a verse that's really convicted me this week. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. You all know Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 because you've all used it on your kids several times. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, right? How many of you parents have ever used that verse? Reminded your children of that. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, that you may enjoy long life on earth. So kids, you all need to remember today to honor your daddy. It's really important to tell him that you love him, to tell him how much you appreciate him, but daddies, I want you especially to see the next verse here. Verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Fathers, do not exasperate your kids. The parallel passage in Colossians says, fathers, don't irritate your kids. Don't provoke them to become angry. It says don't irritate them. Don't get them so that they're exasperated. Now, what causes exasperated kids? I feel that probably one of the greatest problems in the present generation of children is that they're exasperated. As I work with young people, young people are angry. Across the society, kids are angry. Why? Because of the absentee dad. A dad who doesn't know where he's going. A dad that has the idea of it feels good, just do it. A dad that's still following that philosophy out. You know, I'm trying to find myself. You know, I can't give any direction to you. I need to find out what's good for me. That embitters the next generation because no one's showing them how to get down the slopes of life. No one's showing them how you make it. No one's, no one's there to be with them. And you can't just give them a message on Sunday morning. You just can't come in and bombard them in a school classroom. I want every one of you dads to realize you are the key person in your home. Now, God in his grace, if you're a single mother here today that's trying to work with her kids, God in his grace, if you're in it by yourself, will be a daddy to those kids and he can really meet those needs. And he can provide some brothers in the church family to give strong masculine role models. But don't ever forget that the dominant influence in a child's life is his dad. The dominant influence in a child's life is his dad. And Paul, 2,000 years ago, before psychology or, any, or anything, exposed that kind of a reality by the Spirit of God he was breathed through to know, fathers, don't exasperate your kids. Don't provoke them to anger. And what provokes them to anger more than anything else is the absence of the second part of the verse. Look what it says. Instead, instead of 
instead of getting them totally irritated, totally exasperated, instead of that, bring them up. Nourish them. The word that's used for bring them up is the word that would be used for feeding somebody. Nourish them. Feed them. It's, then it becomes a word that means to teach and to instruct, very much in terms of not just verbal communication, but an entire life with that child. Bring them up in the training, and it uses a word that's used of positive instruction, telling them the ropes in life, giving them the basic ski instructions about how to get down the slippery slopes of life, showing them that there are standards, showing them that there is a way to do it, that there are some absolutes that you have to nail down. It says give them that positive instruction. Then it says this, and give them instruction in the Lord. And the word instruction is a negative word. It's a, it's a word used for admonishment. It's a word used for warning. It's a word used for discipline. It's that hard word when a daddy has to stand up in his home and have confrontation. Not because he's angry, because that makes kids angry, but because he loves. It's someone that realizes that when he sees a child going down a slippery slope where they could really get hurt, that they love them enough to admonish and to warn and to give instruction. And it's that balance. It's the balance of positive teaching, teaching them the principles that will get them down the slopes of life, with negative reproof when they don't follow that. It's a very skillful balance of slowly but surely as they move from early adolescence into late adolescence, being able to more and more open your hands so they'll have the discipline in themselves, so they'll be able to go out into the world by themselves. But when they're little ones, all the way through from those early years, they need to have a dad that's living it in his own life and is teaching it in his life how to get down the slopes of life. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 10 is a chapter that shows us how a leader, what we're really talking about, dads, in this verse is leadership. We're talking about a man that's strong enough to know where he's going, what he believes, that knows how to get his kids connected with God, and a, and a father that really understands the basics. I want you to turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Remember when we left Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses had just interceded for the people. It looked like the people might be destroyed. But God in his grace came down and touched the life of the people of Israel. And when Moses prayed for them, the Lord turned away from his anger and the Lord returned and said he would forgive the people. Moses had come down the mountain and he had smashed the Ten Commandments. He didn't take it off the wall. He threw it down on the ground and smashed it. Remember we learned last time it was not because he was angry. It was because the people had trashed the moral law of God. Now chapter 10 begins with instructions from the Lord after the Lord has heard the prayer of intercession and the Lord said this to Moses. At that time the Lord said to me, Moses is the one that's speaking, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones and come up to me on the mountain. Also make a wooden chest, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Then you are to put them in the chest. So I made the ark of acacia wood, and I chiseled, it out, of two, and I chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones. I went up on the mountain and with, it, with the two tablets in my hands. The Lord wrote on these tablets what he had written before. Same message, because it was right. It's the foundation of human morality. 
The Lord wrote out on these tablets, and what he wrote out were the Ten Commandments. He wrote out the Ten Commandments, which he had written before, the Ten Commandments he had proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me, and then I came back down the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made as the Lord commanded me, and they are there until now. In old Israel, dads, in old Israel, at the center of their relationship with God was the moral command of God. Right at the heart of this chest that was made out of wood, that was later overlaid with gold, they put in these two tablets of stone. And it expressed the foundation of Israel's moral relationship with God. As daddies, one of the very first responsibilities you have one of the first responsibilities you have is to regather and to reinstitute in your home the shattered moral law of God. You see, replacing the shattered law of God in our society is one of the most important things that can be done. One of the things that happened in the 60s, and I don't have time to trace its historical development, goes way back into the, the history of philosophy in Germany and it was a very long, convoluted history. But at the turn of the century, at the beginning of the 20th century, the authority of God's word, the authority of the Bible, and the authority of the moral commands of God, intellectually, was crashed. It was shattered in the intellectual universities of Germany, which at that time was at the peak of intellectual development in the West. And it infiltrated the United States of America by 1920. Princeton Seminary, before 1920, was the bastion of biblical commitment, of biblical morality, of biblical ethics. It was like the Dallas Seminary of our day. The leading Bible teachers intellectually in the land taught at Princeton Seminary. But from 1920 to 1930, that drastically changed. And biblical authority went was thrown into the tank. It was just jettisoned away. It took many years. In the 60s, there was a headline, Time Magazine, I believe it was 1965. Is God dead? Altizer, a theologian, put it all out on the table in a popular slogan, and he made the claim, God is dead. What he meant by that is that the God of the Bible is dead. What a society believes about God, what you believe about God, has profound effect upon everything that you say and do. Every one of you are profoundly religious. A lot of you don't think you are, but you are. Every one of us worship. Every one of us adore. Every one of us praise. The issue is who or what are we going to worship and praise? The idea that God is dead is that the traditional biblical God the God of Mount Sinai, the God of the Ten Commandments, the God that sent his son to die on the cross for us, the God that sent his son to rise again, that God was dead. It was all a fable. It was all a hoax. It was all just pretend. And I'd love to sit down and talk with you. You say, well, Dave, you know, I went to the university in the 60s and I was taught certain things. Let's go out to lunch. Let's talk. Because it's part of a whole structure of thought and you can trace it from the Enlightenment and, and influenced by the Reformation, coming to our culture. But what you need to realize is that concept that God is dead began to dominate our culture. And our culture, in a popular sense, turned away from the idea of moral standards, from the idea of a God of the Bible that appeared on Mount Sinai. And it's been replaced. 
It's been replaced in popular thinking with the force. May the force be with you. Not may Jesus be with you, but may power be with you. The force. You know, may you be reincarnated. A cult has come on like gangbusters since those days in the 60s. Now, you as a daddy, you as a daddy need to open your eyes and just think. Where has it led? What does it do for my kids? Because you can't escape from it. Some of you were raised in church families where you were hurt. Some of you really have never had this book opened up to you. Some of you were raised in churches, you thought they were teaching you the Bible, but if we were just to talk about some, just give me some ideas from Proverbs. Give me some ideas from the book of Revelation. Tell me a little bit about Ephesians. Some of you that were raised in churches couldn't answer any of those questions. So you've never been exposed to the Word of God. Because one of the biggest hoaxes, one of the things that grieves me the most, is there's so few churches sometimes that really open up this book and talk about it. And so some of you have never even tried the real thing. You've never even made the choice to hear the real thing. Because you've never heard it. You were given a brand of religion. They tacked a little Jesus on every once in a while. If you were honest and really open, you say, Dave, I don't really know the foggiest idea about what Jesus really did and why he did it and, and is there proof of the resurrection and, and should I believe that the Bible is the word of God? What about all the errors in it? We can talk about all those things. There's good, solid answers for all those good, honest questions. But you need to decide, Dad. You need to decide. Mary and I made choices what we were going to believe. And Mary and I decided that the revelation of Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, that ultimately can only be fulfilled through the power of Jesus Christ living in us, the power of his resurrection coming into our life to give us the ability to live out the Ten Commandments. Mary and I decided we were going to pick up those shattered tablets that many of our friends, especially in secular university, were throwing down and abandoning. And we made some choices. When we started going together and when we made that commitment of marriage, we made some choices. We made some choices about what we were going to believe. The very first thing that a daddy needs to do, according to Moses, is we need to take up those shattered tablets. I would like every father to think of reaching down and picking up the shattered tablets of morality. It's still wrong to steal. It's still wrong to cheat. Very serious, like in your business dealings, if you cheat, you're shattering the tablets for your family. And Jesus comes to you with a dad and says, Dad, I want you to admit that cheating. I want you to talk to me about it. I want you to confess it to me. And then I'll forgive you because I'm not going to reject you. I died so that that could be clean. I died so that you could be forgiven. I died so that you could have life. And Jesus comes and says, I want, I want you to admit to me where you've thrown the tablets down. I want you to let me pick them up for you again. And this time, you know, the tragedy of this passage, and we'll only be able to look at this introductory passage today. The tragedy of, the, of old Israel is that the law was put into the chest, and it wasn't inside this chest. And that's the marvelous difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, they put the moral principles of living in a chest of wood. 
Jesus Christ takes the living moral principles of himself and puts it in our life. And I want to share with you those laws, loving God with all your heart, it all begins with God. It all begins with God. Daddy, the beginning of the moral law is, what about God? And then it goes on. Don't have any other idols before me. You can't live for anything else. What destroys our homes, Dad, is when I start, what destroys my home is when I start to live for pride. When I start to live for what people think, and it drives me, and it drives me. It can even drive me, and it's doing so sometimes right now because we're in a very hassle period. And my pride can drive me so that I can never relax. I can never let go. I've always got to get ready to preach. I've always got to get ready to teach. And I can never just relax. Just being honest with you. You see, that's what starts to happen. That's idolatry, people. It's pride. It's living for other things. The Lord Jesus says, David, relax. I'll fill you. I'm the one that builds my people. If I use the jackass, I can certainly use you. So just relax. Use your gift, but don't drive yourself. It's idolatry to drive yourself, fathers. Are you pushing and pushing and pushing? Fathers, be honest. If you can't just relax with your kids, if you're not there for them, if you can't just relax and be with them and play, you're an idolater. So am I. The Lord Jesus says, admit that. And then let my grace humble that pride. Let my grace help you to do it with the ease of the Spirit working through your life. The Bible still says it's wrong to murder. It's wrong to, it's wrong to let anger. Remember we talked about how murder is rooted in the anger that we let dwell in our soul and bitterness begins to uproot us and begins to take up residence in our life. We become very bitter. It's still wrong to be angry. And as a dad, that anger, anger is one of the dominant things that destroys our relationship with our wife and with our kids. And the Ten Commandments is what gives us like an MRI of that condition and says, hey, this is wrong. You can't be constantly frustrated, constantly irritated. You can't be like a, a boiling teapot that's going to go off and say, well, Dave, how do I get rid of that? Admit it. Come to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, I'm really angry. I am furious. I could tear someone's head off. Lord, this is what's going on in my life. This is what I'm frustrated about. This is what I'm angry about. This is the injustice that I think has been done to me. And Lord, I bring it to you and I just plop it in your lap. You take care of it. Vengeance is yours. You're going to repay. You're going to set this world right. You do it. I'm not going to hang on to it. And then you can be at ease. You can let forgiveness roll down. You can let forgiveness begin to control your life. It's still wrong to be immoral. Still wrong to be immoral. It's still wrong to commit adultery. I had a really neat experience about on Thursday night. It was exhausting, but on Thursday night, I told Jonathan and Joel, I said, Jonathan and Joel, I need you to interact with me about camp next week. So I got him in. I let him go through all the surveys because it's all done anonymously so they wouldn't know at all who was talking. And I just let him look over the survey. I said, what do you guys think? Tell me about it. And I had them for two and a half hours. They told me about the choices they made in, in high school. They talked to me about the temptations to take drugs, the temptations to drink. They told me about when they were tempted to do that. They talked to me about wrestling with relationships with the opposite sex and how easy it is to make mistakes, and they were just really honest. And they shared with me about all that. They, I said, well, I said, guys, what can we say at camp that will really change their lives? 
And Joel said something like, you know, in his short, simple way, he said, it's about this relationship with God. It all begins about God. We came to the area of sexuality, and Jonathan said, Dad, we're just whistling through our teeth until we're ready for accountability. I said, what are you talking about? He said, with my roommate Paul, when we went to UT, the reality of the matter is, in the first four weeks, you decide which direction you're going to go. And we watched our friends that grew up with us making decisions, one direction or the other. And Jonathan and Paul said they got together, and they had to make decision which way we're going to fly. And Jonathan said to me, he said, Dad, you really, want it, you really want things to get together in a kid's life sexually, then they need to make a choice like this, and, and it would be the word for Dad. He says, Dad, you want to live morally pure? You really want to live morally pure today, because that's what it's really going to take. Then it comes down to stuff like this. So you have a friend, an accountability friend, that you know is going to ask you specific questions. Every one of you men need to have someone that's close enough to ask you specific questions. And God will use that. Jonathan said, well, there's a, there's a mall that on a beautiful hot day, all the babes at the University of Texas go out and they sun on that mall. And, and A&M would have the same area. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, I know, if I know that when I get home at night, Paul will look at me and say, Jonathan, it was a hot day, and all the babes were out on that mall. What did you do with your eyes? You see, that's when we're going to start influencing the world for Christ. And when they knew, when I get back from a date, my roommate asked me, when you said goodnight tonight from your date, what happened? See, that's when we're going to have purity. Until then, we're just playing church. I want to share with you moms and dads and kids, children, the crime need in the United States, the culture crash, the shattered tablets in our culture, it, it's all happening. And we can get all excited about it. We can say, man, we need to do something. We need to really get involved, and we do. We need to get involved in proclaiming the gospel. And I want to share something else, though. Our gospel message is not going to have any credibility until we as a group of believers, a group of dads, I'm speaking specifically to the dads, I would like to see a whole bunch of dads that, like Paul and Jonathan, say, I've got a friend. You find a friend. You find another man. And you're going to set it up that you're going to meet regularly. If you've fallen... What we've talked about today, if the, if the tablets have been shattered in your life, the scripture's not saying that God's done with you. He's not saying just forget it. That's why Jesus died. I've blown it. My eyes haven't always looked the right direction going by the mall. Steve Farrar in his book talks about being a pastor in Point Man. He talked about being a pastor out there on the West Coast in Washington. One night he couldn't sleep and he got up and went to an all-night convenience store and he was looking through the magazine rack and all of a sudden he found himself thumbing through the pictures of a Playboy magazine. No one in the store except him and the clerk. And the clerk didn't see what he was doing. But halfway through the Playboy, 
like a sledgehammer just hitting me. Says, what in the world am I doing? What am I doing? What would happen if some of the people in my church saw what I was doing? What would my testimony be in my town here near San Francisco? How in the world would I ever, you know, how would I ever explain this? And he threw the magazine down. But he didn't just do that. The Lord knocked on his heart and said, Steve, Sunday morning, I want you to tell that story to your congregation. Yuck. No, I can't do that, man. No one would listen to me if we did. I couldn't do that. I'm the minister. Man, I'm God incarnate in the flesh for those people. Now the Lord said, Steve, you tell them. You confess your fault. And Steve got up that Sunday morning and told that story. And he said, congregation, I ask you to forgive me. It was wrong. Things started to happen among that community of believers because they started to be honest. That's how we replace the shattered tablets. What I say to camp is really not going to mean that much, not nearly as much as every dad and every potential dad is going to say when the kids get back home. Some of you are from some Baptist backgrounds. I love it. You like that you call preacher. All the Baptists like preacher. We close today, I want to tell you something. You're the preacher. You're the preacher. Especially in our day today. Professional preachers these days have the moral authority in the United States of a used car salesman, only a little bit worse. But I want to share something with you. You as a layman in the business world every single day, stopping your lying, stopping your immorality, stopping your cheating, loving God with all your heart in the public marketplace, just the men in this room, and we'll have a mighty moving of the Spirit again. The Church of Jesus Christ has become the moral laughingstock of our land. There's no power anymore. We have a form of godliness, but we deny its power. And what people on the right need to hear and what people on the left need to hear and people in between need to hear is there's a marvelous ski instructor that meets a gang of little kids halfway down the mountain. And he says, kids, I'm an expert. And I want to show you how to live. And I'm going to guide you through life because I'm the best friend you'll ever have. In fact, I gave my life for you. But I just didn't die to forgive you. I arose again so that I live forevermore. And I want to walk with you in life. I want to teach you how to ski, I want to teach you how to live. I covet every one of you dads being able to have a kid spend two and a half hours with you, spitting back at you the values that you and your wife committed yourself to before they were born. And I want you to have the joy of having them share those values better than you communicated them yourself.
I want you dads to have a, have a teenage son say, Dad, you ought to say it like this because it'll work a whole lot better. And this illustration's a lot more with it than this. As I went to bed that night, in the midst of the shattered tablets of our society, there can still be love. And I want to share with you, Dad, when you're tempted to leave home, when you're tempted to go for 15 minutes of pleasure, when you're tempted to not be the example the Lord wants for you, let Christ work in your heart. Because there's no pleasure on earth that beats this.